Good morning, everyone. Um, it's great to be with you uh, again this morning. Um, great time in communion, great time in uh, song, and uh, as we continue to worship, uh, we're going to worship through the Word now. And um, uh, so uh, if you're uh, new uh, with us this morning, uh, we welcome you, very warmly welcome you in the name of Christ, and, and uh, we look forward to uh, sharing the gospel, sharing the truths of God's Word with you um, uh, right now, and um, you're warmly welcomed, and uh, we hope that you're blessed that you will meet God through his revelation uh, to you um, this morning. Um, and we're continuing the first uh, epistle of Peter, chapter 4, and we're looking at the next two verses in that section that address how, to, how a redeemed sinner needs to be living out their life in Christian community in response to what Christ has done for them in victory over sin, death, and the wrath of God uh, being defeated uh, at the cross, which was our former inheritance. Um, and Peter continues to teach the church, those who have experienced salvation by faith through grace, what living now ought to look like and what it should consist of in contrast to our former way of life. This new life in Christ is profoundly different. It has an eschatological perspective now. As we learned last week in Jermaine's sermon, life must be lived now with a view to the end of all things. And a brand new view of the future now determines how we will live today. Believing that the promises about our new hope and destiny are true, meaningful, and they're truly awesome, actually. Um, we now possess a confidence and assurance that did not exist before our repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. Verse 7, as we learned last week, started us off informing us that right thinking affects right behavior. Our thinking affects our, our actions, right? Uh, which affects our communion with God, and hence our prayers, and whether they're hindered or not, uh, as we consider the end which is near. Uh, so let's read from verse 7. Uh, for context that Jermaine unpacked for us last week. 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 7, 8, and 9. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Let's just open a prayer. Our God and Heavenly Father, thank you for the revelation that you've given to us of yourself, of your Son, of the remedy for sin. Um, thank you that you've given us teaching on how we ought to function as uh, believers in uh, the, the sacrifice and the life and death and resurrection of Christ and what he's accomplished for us uh, at, at Calvary and, and how, as a community of believers now, how we ought to live, uh, unlike the way our former manner of life, as we're told. And thank you that we get these truths uh, taught to us by your revelation. Help us now as we unpack them to understand these few verses and the truths that are in them, the, uh, the actions that result from them or ought to result from them. Help us to understand and to practice them. And uh, teach us as we would uh, sit in your word now. In Christ's name we ask. Amen. So, Peter has been dealing, uh, detailing for us uh, since chapter 2, verse 11 of this, of this section, um, right through to 11, uh, 
4 verse 11. So two, chapter 2 verse 11 to chapter 4 verse 11 is a kind of a, a section, and we're at the closing end of this section. And he's teaching us what the expectations are for the believer's new life in Christ as a member of the Christian community. So uh, there's, but, but there's, with expectations, uh, expe- expectations for a believer, with expectations come responsibilities and priorities. And that's the way life works, right? Uh, yet scripture is replete with commands, so much so that it can be confusing to know which uh, things we ought to be doing on a given day and in what order. Um, who can relate to that, right? So you read scripture, there's almost 750,000 words in there and there's a lot of commands. So what are we to be doing and when? Um, the Old Testament alone had 613 commands in it to be kept, which made it essentially impossible to keep them all. And that was the whole point. It proved a key point that we cannot please God by any works of the law. But for New Testament believers, Jesus made it much simpler for us with different commands, such as Matthew 6.33, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Or Luke 10.27, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And think back and recall what Peter said earlier in chapter 1, verse 22. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of a perishable seed, but of an imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. Peter now highlights our need to exercise a fervency of love in the local gathered body of believers, what is now known as the Ecclesia or the church. Peter learned from his Lord well. He understood what Christ wanted from his followers. Now, this disciple had been left as an apostle and teacher following Christ's death, having graduated from the school of Christ and needing to apply what he had learned at the side of the Savior. Jesus instructed Peter three times to love and feed his sheep, after he had sinned and denied him three times. Peter clearly understood that this was a very high priority. And feed them he did, undoubtedly recalling the profound love and forgiveness he personally experienced. We read here what is concisely written, a concisely written instruction to love one another as fervently as Christ has loved us. He no doubt remembered what John reported Jesus saying in John 13, 35, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. It should be self-evident that loving God is our highest duty, but close behind this is a deep love for our brothers and sisters in Christ. In fact, it is not, impos- it is not possible to do otherwise if we are manifesting our love of God but to love one another. Peter was one of a very small number who was with Jesus during his entire earthly ministry, one of three in particular who was very close to Jesus himself, at his side constantly. Being suddenly called from the the shore of the sea while in the middle of making a living, carrying out routine fishing duties, to abruptly leave everything and follow God incarnate. Then to witness him over a three-year period fulfilling the law and the prophets in truly miraculous ways, and yet without sin. Peter witnessed a pure and radical love, the love of God toward the entire world, and then to see Jesus apply this love to himself personally when he denied him those three times. 
In his weakness and darkest moments, Peter saw the compassion and love of God demonstrated, and he witnessed it practically and repeatedly day after day. Now, understanding forgiveness on a profound level, he, he writes to the readers of his epistle concerning what our Lord himself taught, how we are to be loving God and loving others, and how it fulfills the law. Verse 8 says, love one another earnestly or deeply. By the way, this reminds me of our new FO logo, to love deeply, right? Earnestly or deeply can also be interpreted as constantly, love constantly, extending love to others without end. Peter's supreme concern is about practicing love in the believer's life, and specifically in Christian community, in the local church of gathered believers. The Greek language has various forms of the concept of love, um, a few examples. Uh, here it's um, translated as agape love, uh, very well known to many of us, of course, and it is the selfless love that we should have for all, even our enemies. It is the love that God has towards us, who were once his enemies. Elsewhere, philia is used for brotherly affection, you know, Philadelphia, philia, um, brotherly, the city of brotherly love, brotherly affection. Uh, eros is the romantic love uh, felt towards one's spouse. Um, Others, storge is the love we have towards a family member, and other forms of love exist in the original languages throughout Scripture, the Hebrew and the Aramaic. Um, if you search for the English word love in the ESV, it totals 652 occurrences, consisting of various forms, of course. Some uh, key uses, we should be mindful of our, uh, for example, Ephesians, uh, 3, 17, and 19, um, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Or 1 John 4, 9, in this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. That indeed is a profound verse. There's so much about the love of God in there. Note that God initiates that God's love initiates, that God's love initiates and our love replicates. It comes from practicing his love. I'll say that again. God's love initiates and our love replicates. It comes from practicing his love. We must be ever grateful of God's love. Paul elsewhere reminds us that love never fails, too. Um, but loving others can be fraught with obstacles, our sin and other sin. And it makes loving hard and finding fault easy and sometimes, unfortunately, pleasurable in exposing others' sin. Therefore, love is incredibly important because it covers a multitude of sins. It is speculated that Peter was recalling the language of Proverbs 10 and verse 12 when, where it says, hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all offenses. He's probably reflecting on that. Um, like he did on, on, on many of the Old Testament verses that he quotes. But uh, it is interesting that Peter says a multitude of sins. He well knows the human condition firsthand. 
he knows his Lord was not selective in his forgiveness of his sins. It wasn't for certain sins that Jesus died, but for all of his sins in their totality, period. And by the way, uh, a search on the English uh, ESV version, um, it translate, where it translates sin, it yields 656 results, a similar number to the, the word love. In other words, it is addressed frequently. This certainly should not come to surprise any, any one of us here, especially those who are redeemed. Um, this is where God is, is speaking often to address our greatest need, uh, how to deal with our sin. But he also speaks much about that remedy, which is love. Uh, so let's pause for a minute and dwell on what sin is. Uh, we, we too often assume we understand the definition of sin. But is our definition the same as how God sees how, sees it, uh, how God sees it, our sin. Grudemann is a systematic theology defines sin as any failure to conform to the moral law of God in act, attitude, or nature. I'll repeat that. Any failure to conform to the moral law of God in act, attitude, or nature. That's what sin is defined as classically in a lot of theology. Uh, sin is not simply an, an act committed or even omitted. It includes attitudes contrary to what God requires of each of us. And that's a big, I think, a big ouch we have to say there, right? Um, sinful acts are what we naturally think of first, of course, uh, like do not steal, do not murder, do not lie. The, the acts that we're not supposed to do, and I'm assuming that most of us don't do those, right? Or we try not to. Um, and somewhat, I think they're somewhat easier to not do. Or, and the, the acts that we ought to do can be even easier to do if we are motivated to do them, right? But sinful attitudes, that's where the problem lies. Sinful attitudes are like, do not covet, wrongfully desire your neighbor's spouse or your neighbor's property or your neighbor's servant. And likewise, do not be jealous and do not be angry or do not lust. Those things are far harder to accomplish, right? And a life that is morally pleasing to God must consist of all of our actions and our desires, which desires uh, result in uh, attitudes, right? Remember that we are to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Mark 12.30 again. This speaks of our internal character and the problem we have with being morally pure. This is due to what we usually refer to as the sinful nature. We hear that all the time, right? As a sinful nature that we're born with. And by the way, Romans and Ephesians, if you want to get do a deep dive on uh, study of sin, go to Romans, go to Ephesians, and start unpacking, because it addresses sin quite well, very explicitly. Uh, it doesn't hold back at all. Paul, Paul, go, Paul goes 100% on that. Um, and being sinful means to that we do not conform to the moral standard of a holy God, hence the need for Christ's redemptive work on our behalf. It is interesting that Peter here communicates the image about covering and its association with sin. If we think back to the Old Testament, we see the first instance of covering taking place after Adam and Eve sinned in the garden. What does God do? God provides a covering for them due to their awareness of their guilt, their nakedness, and their shame, and supplies a covering of an animal skin where blood had to be shed for the sake of their sin. Later, blood of, a sacrifice, of sacrificed animals was applied to the mercy seat on the Ark of the Covenant in the Holy of Holies 
to cover or atone for the sins of the people on the Day of Atonement. But now the blood of Christ covers our sins and, and washes them away, actually, too, right? And clothes us in his righteousness. It accomplishes much more, and it's, and it's perfect, and it's perfect in, it, in what it accomplishes. And the love that, is caused, that has caused all of this, we are now partakers of by faith through grace. Our God-given love covers a multitude of sins in the day-to-day between one another now. Now we can genuinely love one another on a level that was formerly impossible. We must not forget that we are works, of, works in progress, that we're being sanctified, but we're not yet complete. Such an understanding brings a grace to one another, as God has shown his grace to us. As we recognize that none of us has arrived, we are all at different levels in our progress and process of maturing in the likeness of Christ, in our discipleship with one another and with Christ. Focusing on the trivial, the negative, nitpicking, being legalistic, critical, and petty are the dangers of our flesh. We see it often as we socialize and interact with one another. And as believers, we are members of the family of God now. Families sometimes quarrel, but we are obligated to love one another and to forgive one another. God has covered all our sin. How far ought we to go to cover the sins of our siblings in Christ? After all, it was Peter that asked Jesus how many times he must forgive his brother. Remember that? Peter boldly proposes seven times, likely thinking that he would impress Jesus. But what did Jesus say? He replies with 70 times 7, 490 for the math nerds out there, or essentially enough to lose count. So Peter, touche, point well noted, but it's far beyond 7. In other words, keep forgiving constantly without limits or conditions. And please note, this is not a call to tolerate or provide a pass on sinful abuses from others. Those 490 times that... We have, we have to uh, do that in, in uh, context. We have to do that biblically. So far from it, um, rather, than, rather it is a call for unconditional love for anyone who genuinely seeks it from us while working with our brother or sister concerning their sin. Uh, working together, um, receiving forgiveness, offering forgiveness, we, we have to work that out. And, and that's, that's part of discipleship, right? So although we forgive others, we must remember that it is because of the love of God that we are able to genuinely and unconditionally forgive our brothers and sisters. Our flesh doesn't naturally have this kind of capacity or inclination. 490 times is a lot, and for the same person and for the same sin, 490 times, like, yikes, um, that's hard to do, and that doesn't come, uh, it's not natural, and it's not in us naturally to forgive like this, at this level. Um, Our love and forgiveness are derived are a derived love. They're an imputed love, one that extends forgiveness based on being forgiven ourselves of all of our sin, paid in full by the redemptive work of our Lord Jesus. But practicing love and forgiveness of this kind to others is more than merely a verbal or mental exercise. It must be evidenced by serving others. What is the motivation for serving others? Uh, because we are now ministers of the mercy, love, and grace of God, that's why. Our, our deep and abiding love for Christ must motivate us to serve our brothers and sisters in Christ. God has given us gifts to be intentional with and that we might serve and glorify him with our lives 
and forsake sin and practice holiness, most certainly. His design for us in the church body involves us using our gifts to serve one another as well as the world that is around us. Interestingly, Peter does not mention the gifts of the Spirit here and their use in the church, as Paul uh, was led to do in his epistles, um, especially think of Corinthians. Uh, Instead, he considers only focusing on ministry through our speech and through our serving one another. Simple yet profound, focusing on the essential things we can and must be doing. The key thought that occurred here as I was considering this was what Paul noted in, uh, to the Corinthian church in the famous love chapter. Everybody hears it at every wedding, right? 1 Corinthians 13 is read often. That exercising our spiritual gifts at the expense of demonstrating love is a very wrong-headed approach to serving the, and loving the body of Christ and living in Christian community. Recall what he wrote. He said, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have and if I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. By no means am I suggesting that we don't exercise our spiritual gifts. Don't get me wrong. I, was, I would uh, encourage us to do so, and to do so frequently, often. Um, next week, Mike will unpack spiritual gifts, the next verse. But loving one another fervently is far more important than the exercise of any spiritual gift that we might possess. So continuing with verse 9, it says, Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. With respect to using our gifts and serving, Peter specifically tells us to show hospitality. And Jermaine addressed that in our communion service, which was, was, was great. Um, this is given attention with the implication of us needing to be aware of and practicing both our natural and spiritual gifts, which, by the way, I personally see as both being given by the Spirit of God, by God himself. We are created beings. We're divinely constructed and naturally inclined to be good at and gifted with certain things, many natural abilities, that, that you have, I don't, I don't have, or that I have, that you might not have. Um, in, addition, and in addition to the spiritual abilities we acquire upon coming to faith and trusting Christ for our salvation, spiritual gifts that we receive, um, God knows what we need, and he gifts us with those. Uh, hospitality is described as a virtue, uh, rather, and, that, and some people will argue that it's a gift, uh, a spiritual gift, but I'm going to argue that it's, it's a virtue, that uniquely allows us to combine and exercise both aspects of our abilities, the natural and the spiritual. The Greek word translated hospitality means to be generous to guests or to have love for strangers or to be fond of guests. Uh, The idea of being hospitable is to focus on others. How much of our time each week is primarily focused on ourselves versus others? We all have to ask ourselves that question often, I think. Everyone's position in life and our present roles, whether being primarily in the home, raising children and caring for our families, or in the workplace, uh, often lots of hours there, uh, it, it varies greatly in how we interact with and serve others. Much of it is an exercise of our natural gifts, of course, not in the context of explicit uh, spiritual practices and loving and serving others, but rather it is often fundamentally matters of 
duty in the daily grind. Now in the church, our focus might be similar in our exercise of our natural gifts, but, but it differs with the addition of our spiritual gifts and to be loving deeply. Spiritual gifts are a study in and of themselves for which we ought to look at sometime in 1 Corinthians 12, and maybe Mike will do that next week. Maybe he'll do a deep dive on that. Uh, but much of the focus and, and danger concerning spiritual gifts is the misuse of them to serve um, not God, but others, or sorry, not God and others, but oneself. So spiritual gifts are often misused to serve oneself. And it's not necessarily for the glory of God as a primary motive. So unfortunately, today's modern church is afflicted with a hyper-focus on self-fulfillment. And likely this has always been the case since Paul had to address it in his day. But too often it is not at all about the reasons why gifts have been given and the intent uh, of being used to glorify God. We are to be helping others by serving them within the body of Christ, as well as outside the body of Christ, to both show and share the gospel of Christ. Hospitality is an often neglected practice in the life of the church and the individual lives of and homes of believers, sadly. While scripture does not describe hospitality as a spiritual gift, it, would, it should be evident that it is a practice that we are to be exercising to varying degrees on a regular basis. It is a virtue that every believer is to be practicing frequently. The context in which Peter was writing this, where people were coming to faith and repentance of sin in his day, receiving the forgiveness of God through the redemptive work of his son, of God's Son, Jesus Christ, uh, was especially important for his readers to understand. The amenities of our day were largely non-existent then. They didn't have restaurants or motels or grocery stores or spas and all these things, and uh, much more that we have access to uh, in our day, in our modern day, and that we uh, frankly enjoy. Um, The hospitality industry, as we know it, did not exist back then. And more importantly, the new followers of Christ were ostracized from society far more than we are today. And as a result, most of their former relationships were very broken or instantly broken when they came to faith. They were being severely treated for their new faith in the resurrected Jesus, who likewise had been rejected, suffered, and ultimately put to death, murdered. Uh, Following him was and still can be very costly, of course, the churches that Peter wrote to have no choice but to survive as a family now, showing a deep love for one another and to be helping to meet the most practical daily needs of those who likewise follow Jesus. We are very familiar with what Jesus said about showing love and hospitality to those outside of the body of Christ. As we read uh, Matthew twenty-five thirty-five, for example, For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. Or Hebrews 13, 2, Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. But Peter here commands that hospitality be practiced between believers in the local church. Think of the early church. They didn't have church buildings. They met in each other's homes, as we did often during COVID, actually. Hospitality uh, takes on a whole different dynamic in such a context. It's very personal, and it can be much more intimate when it's in your home. The church went from house to house, not as an organized charity, but as a living organism practicing hospitality. 
for which all in the local church family benefited. When someone had it lacked and had a need, others stepped up and met the need within those home settings, within those communities. Also, note that we are to do so without grumbling. Aren't we guilty sometimes too much of grumbling? Like, oh, I don't want to do that. I don't want to have somebody over. I don't want to whatever. And we grumble, right? How interesting that Peter puts this short and pointed statement in with the command to show hospitality. Why, though? Why does it say this to us? Uh, And what does it say about us? Uh, Again, our flesh often betrays our intentions, right? I know that several of you here are aware of uh, a more recent book. I think some of you guys studied it a couple years ago at Jermaine's and Leah's place. Um, uh, And this one just... As soon as I saw this text, I said, "This is I got to read some quotes from this book." So, uh, some of you might know uh, a book written a few years ago by. Uh, it's called um, "The Gospel Comes with a House Key" by Rosaria Butterfield. Um, if you have not heard of it or read it, it is very highly recommended. It's on my highly recommended reading list. Um, it um, I read it a few years ago, and it was when it was first published, and it's a gem. It, it's much needed, a valuable resource for the church today. Um, I don't often recommend books from from uh, <laughs> a sermon, a series, but uh, this one would um, this one would be one that you might want to read. Uh, in it, she details her journey and experiences of hospitality. Um, as a new and radically converted follower of Christ, she left a very um, hospitable LGBTQ community and joined the body of Christ in her local. Um, local community in in a local church near where she lived and uh, she contrasts and discusses the practice of hospitality within both of those communities and points out to a severe lack of understanding and practice of hospitality in the modern day church. Um, The community she came from put to shame the church in spades. It it wasn't even comparable. And and, uh, her life, uh, since she, uh, she married a uh, Presbyterian pastor, and they adopted some kids, and um, they've been practicing like hardcore hospitality ever since. And I just want to share a few outstanding quotes from her book that might help us understand better the um, where we ought to be going with hospitality. So um, some of her quotes are such as, uh, radically ordinary hospitality is this. Using your Christian home in a daily way that seeks to make strangers neighbors and neighbors family of God. It brings glory to God, serves others, and lives out the gospel in word and deed. The purpose of radically ordinary hospitality is to build, focus, deepen, and strengthen the family of God, pointing others to the Bible-believing local church and being earthly and spiritually good to everyone we know. God calls Christians to practice hospitality in order to build loving Christian communities to build nightly table fellowship with fellow image bearers, to ease the pain of orphanhood, widowhood, and prison, to be qualified as elders in the church, and to be good and faithful stewards of what God has given to us in the person, work, example, obedience, and suffering of the Lord Jesus Christ. This gospel call that renders strangers into neighbors, into family of God, is all pretty straight up when you read the Bible, especially the book of Acts. And it requires both hosts and guests. We must participate as both hosts and guests, not just one or the other. As giving and receiving are good and sacred and connect people and communities in important ways. 
Christians have a moral responsibility to be good stewards, and this includes stewarding the church. Religious liberty, ideas, laws, the family, and the worldwide refugee crisis. The world is watching, and rightly so, and our lack of visible and genuine hospitality practiced both inside our community and outside is speaking louder than words right now. Hospitality is the ground zero of the Christian life, biblically speaking. A more crucial question for the Bible-believing Christian is this. Is it safe to fail to get involved? Radically ordinary hospitality manifests confident trust that God, or sorry, that the Lord will care for us and that he will care for others through our obedience. And that's the end of those quotes. And some of the key things I listed um, that she brought out also um, which were just kind of little nuggets that we should um, think about. Um, she says, hospitality reflects the gospel. Hospitality is spiritual warfare. Hospitality requires unity in the church. Hospitality is good for the giver. Hospitality nurtures and grows the family of God. Daily hospitality is good for our children. Hospitality is worth it. So if you supplement your Bible reading on hospitality with reading a book like this, uh, it will convict you. It will instruct you on repentance too, and church discipline, and much more because they're all related items, right? But it will also provide more clarity, and, uh, practical clarity and pract on the practices and advice on how hospitality is to be lived out and how it's to become a vehicle for loving the bride of Christ and teaching her to love those who are lost in their sin, whether friends or enemies. And... Please know, uh, to be sure, when you're reading non-biblical books, uh, read them with discernment, of course. Books that are helpful, right? Study books and helpful books, um, guidebooks. But, um, but always be holding the scripture as a source and master of all truth. I can assure you that the author admits that she's not infallible, just a sinner saved by marvelous grace who seeks to be obedient under the leadership of her local church, uh, lo her local church elders, and shares what her family does. Her husband as pastor and herself... Uh, and her children do in their community as they learn to practice love and hospitality, serving Christ and his church where they live. So in summary of these two short but important verses, um, we have been drawn back to some of the fundamental elements of life after experiencing God's grace and redemption. Uh, the first point would be that uh, we're to be loving deeply and constantly with a love that emulates the love of Christ. The second point would be understanding sin and what the forgiveness of God for our sin means while considering the sin that does and will occur in the fellowship of, the, of, of our saints, of our church, and how to, how to handle that and how to cover those sins um, as a community. And number three, to joyfully show the grace of hospitality to our brothers and sisters in Christ because of what we have received from him requires and empowers us to desire to live in community where we receive bless, honor, and provide for the needs of the body as a witness to the marvelous providence of God through the accomplishment of his son, our Lord Jesus Christ, for our benefit and God's glory. Let's just close in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for the beauty of your word. Uh, thank you that just a few words on a page can elicit so much conversation, so much thinking, so much 
conviction, so much instruction, so much um, uh, love to well up in our hearts because it reminds us of what's been done for us and to us and what can be done through us to glorify you and to bring glory to your name and to serve you joyfully because uh, it's the least we could do and um, we've just benefited so greatly from your love in dealing with our sin and your hospitality towards us in the most profound way and we just uh, ask that you would remind us of these things this week that you would create situations where we can practice hospitality that we'd be intentional intentional about them uh, intentional about them when the situations aren't there that that you would motivate us that we would find it within ourselves to to create situations of hospitality just to honor and glorify you and to be obedient and to bless others and that we would see um, the love of Christ demonstrated, lived out, um, that we would grow closer to one another and ultimately grow, grow closer to yourself as we would obey you and be faithful and, and bring you more glory, which you so richly deserve. And we just ask that you uh, do so in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ.